Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This program offers discussion and information on experiences of chronic and invisible illnesses. It should not be used for medical advice or as an alternative to advice from medical professionals. Welcome everyone to Chronically Chilled. I'm Maurice and I've got Mario here. We also have a guest speaker today with us, writer and comedian Alistair Baldwin. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, Before we get started, I just want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, whose land we broadcast from today. So Alistair, we thought we'll just jump in. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was kind of researching for this a little bit, Mm -hmm. I just noticed that you do a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of stuff, that different mediums and all that stuff. Mm. So I just thought... um, Kind of what came first and what drew you to all the different areas that you're... Yeah, well, I guess it'd probably be... Because I do, like, writing and within that, that's writing for screen and writing articles and stuff like that. And then beyond that, I do stand-up and improv and other sort of things. But I guess it did start with writing. I would read a fair amount as a child and then I think if you read lots as a child you just sort of I was quite good at English in school and I'd get good marks on short stories and so as I was going into high schools and stuff like that I'd write short stories submit them to competitions uh, and I just sort of writing was the thing that I was best at and enjoyed most and it was only really in the back end of high school that that also sort of translated into writing jokes which is whether you're writing jokes in a story or you're writing it for stand-up I always enjoyed comedy and watching stand-up and watching comedy programs and so I would just think of jokes and it's like we kind of have to be a performer in order to get a lot of ideas out there and yeah in high school I did enter like a stand-up competition for kids um, and that sort of went well, I was the uh, best in WA and then I was destroyed in the national finals. Um, and from there, that was sort of, yeah, let me know that I was interested in writing. I was interested in writing for performance, whether that was me or someone else interested in comedy. And so that led me to uh, applying for a screenwriting degree here in Melbourne, which is why I moved. And then from that screenwriting degree and doing comedy on the side that's how I've sort of got the career that I have today <laughs> yeah cool so um at the moment you're doing some screenwriting with the weekly show is that right uh yes so that's the weekly with Charlie Pickering on mm. ABC so I'm a writer so that's just looking at the news every week and trying to write jokes about the news mm. um yeah so and is that different to kind of other kind of writing that you've done and kind of what's yeah what's yeah it was definitely a learning curve so my the screenwriting degree that I did was in you know uh 
scripted like drama or comedy like characters plot stuff like this mm. whereas the weekly is more or less just kind of writing jokes and or looking for clips and stories and then writing jokes off the back of it so it's a different approach to writing it's not fictional it's you know just trying to translate factual into comedic territory um but yeah so when i started i sort of started my job there as an internship that graduated into a job um so in the internship it was a bit of a learning curve but i guess because i'd sort of also been writing jokes through stand-up and was doing a lot of improv which is just figuring out ways to make anything kind of funny or walking into a scene with nothing and just trying to find jokes out of nothing so that's kind of i guess gave me the skill set to look at a terrible news story and then try and find it um find jokes within it yeah cool just from reading your stuff it seems like disability has been a really big theme throughout it Mm. um so can you talk a little bit about that uh yeah it's certainly i mean i think at the moment where in i mean opinion pieces from an identity perspective are very marketable and as a freelancer it's kind of um from a financial perspective it's good to just mine your own kind of um identity and disability in order to get sort of think pieces out there but also i think i mean disability has always um been part of my perspective as a writer and a comedian i have uh, titanopathy, which is uh, a type of muscular dystrophy, and I wear leg braces, and so a lot of my stand-up uh, is drawn from, I guess, people's perception of disability or making jokes out of that because, I mean, with comedy, you kind of want to surprise people or subvert expectations, and I feel like disability is something that has a lot of baggage put onto it but so rarely do people actually talk about it and so it's a weird thing where it's um I enjoy not that it even is a taboo but from an audience perspective people are just kind of surprised that someone would that a comedian would have a disability to talk about and so I've always found it like quite rich territory to um get jokes out of and make fun of able-bodied people and (laughs) but yeah and so that's always fed into my stand-up and my writing and and I think also just the matter of fact of when I'm writing something I mean that's the perspective that I have so I'll write stuff that has themes of disability or has a disabled character in it and for me, I guess that's the default because that's my lived experience. But I guess from an outside perspective, it you could say everything you write has a theme of disability in it, Alistair. And I'm like, no, everything I write has a theme of me in it, mm-hmm. and I am disabled. But every writer has puts themselves into everything they write because every writer is, you know obsessed with themselves <laughs> and I'm no different it's just that I have an interesting identity layer to myself um, which is mm. interesting and monetizable at this point in uh, culture mm. how have you found that people have responded like with your comedy and and you know you sharing your story and being kind of overtly talking about disability and and making fun of able ableism and stuff like yeah 
well, people laugh, uh, which is the bare minimum. But I think I get a good... Uh, for a while I was sort of working with like a um, diversity-focused comedy night, monthly comedy night. I also am doing involved in and hosting other comedy nights now and, you know, having a lineup of comedians who aren't just the kind of straight, white, able-bodied mm. men which dominate comedy, yeah. I think is important to me um, just from a perspective of I am bored of them, uh, so I don't want them like taking up the majority of the lineup. So I think people, certainly the crowds I'm interested in attracting are people who respond positively to seeing mm-hmm. uh, and hearing different perspectives and different um, lived experiences. So I've had a good reception so far, and I mean, people have booked me, um, which is good, and mm. yeah, I don't know. The reception is largely positive. Yeah, great. I go to comedy a lot, but mm. I was th- thinking the comedy festival this year, and I went to see someone, and I was like climbing three sets of stairs to get into <laughs> venues and all this kind of stuff. And I was actually, by the time I got up there, I was like trying to get kind of my breathing under control. Mm. And I was kind of thinking like accessibility and, and kind of the comedy festival and comedy in general, like is it is it something that needs to be worked on? Or Definitely. Mm. I think it's sort of, from my perspective, like uh, dingy comedy venues are how people hone their craft and get better at what they do and certainly for example the place where I do improv and improv is like a cornerstone of why I'm good enough at my job that people will hire me to write jokes and I thank improv for giving me that skill set but it is up a very um, tall flight of steps and it's like always you know painful getting in and out of that Mm. venue and Certainly at the moment I can do that, but, you know, theoretically later in my life, depending on how things progress, I won't always be able to get into that venue. And I sort of think, yeah, you sort of look on like a, if you zoom out and you look at like the lack of disabled people in, you know, TV or film Mm. or high paying comedians. And it kind of does start with the fact that the dingy, pubs where you start are inaccessible and if you can't Mm. even get into the dingy pubs as a starting point then you can't put in as many hours as an able-bodied person getting good at comedy getting good at writing Mm. which translates you into you having a less impressive cv having less of a knack for thinking on your feet stuff like that so i think there are these kind of barriers for disabled people at a very um, at the kind of beginner level, which is preventing people getting to the more professional level. I don't know. It takes, I guess, um, comedy bookers and hosts to advocate for finding venues which are accessible if they have any interest in making the future of television and film mm. and comedy, you know more diverse you talked a little bit about representation just before um why do you think it is so important well i think certainly it just kind of sucks to not have it i mean i'm i can get into more detail but at a base level i think like growing up and 
you see a lot of your friends around you being able to quite strongly identify with people that they see on TV or in films or in books and you just have less options and I think you know that um, it's quite isolating and it also feeds into if you are like this other and you don't have representation then that feeds into your own kind of self-loathing because Mm. you know it's kind of the assumption that if I if people like me aren't being represented then there's a reason for that and the reason is there's something wrong with people like me and they're people like me suck so why would they be in film and tv which is wrong thinking but certainly when you're starting as a child uh if you you know were disabled as a child as i was then as you're forming your sense of self and sense of identity Mm. you're sort of internalizing um this gap in culture and representation um which you're interpreting as oh people don't want people like me otherwise they'd be there so I think it's important just to give people you know to make people feel like they're not uh, an incorrect type of person Mm. I also think uh, it's important in showing that um, certain career options are available like I there's definitely a thing where you know able-bodied people quite often play disabled Mm. people and win awards or Mm. be in movies for that sort of thing and it's sort of interesting to think that you know even when there is representation a disabled person can look at that and be like well I'm not an able-bodied actor so I could never play a disabled person in a movie so and of course if you're disabled you can't play an able-bodied person in a movie either so you're just Mm. of the two options you're kind of locked out of potentially pursuing a career in acting and so you're sort of it kind of feeds into this job discrimination um and your own psychological perception of i could never make it in the industry which um Mm. is you know shutting people out of a fulfilling and you know financial opportunity for their career and it's sort of limiting what they're able to do and i sort of i feel very lucky that I am now able to, you know, make a living as someone who writes for TV and writes articles and performs and stuff like that. And I would hate to think that people are instantly writing that off as an option for themselves just because they've never really seen someone like them do it before. So I think it's important just to show that there's like a pathway for people if they do want to go into film or television that it is like economically viable for disabled people um which comes down to representation but also comes down to people behind the scenes making it accessible which is also a challenge but also something Mm. that um is important yeah do you do you think it is getting better or do you think it's just the beginning and there's a long long way to go uh i think i mean there's quite a ways go i think we are at an interesting point uh in tv culture now i think certainly in the past couple of years there's been like quite a broad focus on uplifting diversity um and i think uh disability is part of that maybe not to the extent um 
of other groups, uh, but it's like on its way in. So I think mm-hmm. we're at a point now where I think in the coming years we'll begin to see more disabled people riding, but also on television. I mean, I'm not allowed to talk about it, but me, for example, stay tuned. Um, there's exciting stuff coming up <laughs> in the year ahead. Um, so, I don't know, follow me on Twitter if you want to stay, <laughs> stay abreast of all the exciting TV opportunities. Um, but, yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of a way to go to even just, you know, get people to think about accessibility mm-hmm. from, like, a production point of view. I mean, you know, there's, like... The interesting thing I think at the moment is that accessibility, they're like accessibility isn't free as it were. Like, you know, even like you can sort of like, like there can be a producer who is like fine with me being gay and all that is is just like a change of mindset. But for a producer to be okay with me being disabled, it's a change of mindset, but it also includes um, recognising that there's limitations on, you know, how long I can work or how long I can stand or if I were to be in a TV program, what are the physical things that I can do on screen and off screen and, uh, you know, I can't be pulling 12-hour days necessarily. Mm-hmm. So there are... And then you extend that out to, you know, the costs of making sets accessible if they're not already, the costs of having interpreters, if you don't already have mm-hmm. someone who knows Osland, the costs of, you know, if you're going on location, the extra costs of having, you know, someone's guide dog, uh, having interpreters, stuff like that. So mm. there are economic realities to making the industry accessible to everyone, which... I mean, from a human rights perspective, it's necessary to budget for that. But I think from an initial budgetary perspective, people don't even consider the possibility that they might end up hiring or casting a disabled person. So their sort of pre-production budgeting doesn't even necessarily include money set aside for accessibility. So when you do get to casting and hiring, you're... And, if you have two people applying for the jobs and one person is a little bit more expensive because to meet their accessibility needs, you have to put in an Mm. amount of times people will just choose a cheap disabled person, which is, you know, bigoted and illegal technically, although Mm. it's impossible to almost impossible to prove that under the disability discrimination act because in the creative industries, you can just say, I didn't vibe with someone and that's yeah. fine enough. Um, mm. But I think, you know, there there are things that I think it producers need to budget for accessibility, but I also think uh, screen funding bodies need to have accessibility subsidies if, you know, the government is committed to having a more diverse screen industry. I think there's also an onus on them to put money towards stuff like that so that you know it's as affordable for a production to hire an able-bodied person Mm. as a disabled or chronically ill person in which case you're just assessing 
purely the content of someone's character um, and then you might have more disabled people. Mm. That's really interesting because whenever I hear conversations about representation, it's often about the final product Mm. but not often about what goes on behind the scenes and actually what it takes to actually get to the final product. Yeah, Yeah. well, I think certainly in discussions about diversity, the general cultural conversation is very end product-y where people are sort of talking about, you know, how many actors on screen are filling, you know, minority roles, um, which is fantastic and that kind of representation matters too. But if, you know, the the behind-the-scenes writer's room or producers are all... Mm straight white able-bodied people then you can't sort of make a claim that a show as a whole is diverse you can make a claim that they've cast diverse actors but you're not necessarily um i don't know if it's technically a win for diversity if just one layer or one aspect of the show is diverse and Mm. that's just the one that people see but yeah you know, stuff goes on behind the scenes too. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it kind of it sounds like you're talking more about there needs to be structural change that actually allows for representation to occur in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And in all levels. For, I mean, I'm I consider a writer ahead of myself as, you know, a performer, and uh, I've worked on stuff where I'm able to bring, you know, an authenticity to writing disabled characters, which means that. You know, quite often people who are actors who are disabled or chronically ill, even if they are being cast in roles that are disabled or chronically ill, quite a lot of the time they're written by um, able-bodied, chronically healthy people, um, in which case the material that they're working with is kind of cliché or just incorrect, um, in which case, you know, from a visual perspective it's you know, authentic casting. But then if you have an authentically cast person parroting, you know, uh, inauthentic perspectives on disability, then that can almost be more harm than good because it has the glaze of uh, authenticity, the glaze of progressiveness when in actual fact maybe it's reinforcing harmful stereotypes. So I think, you know, good authentic screen products involve um you know people from marginalized communities in all aspects on screen but also working in the writer's room people working in costuming people working in art department directors producers kind of every layer Mm. we're running out of time very quickly but i just (laughs) want to ask one more question um I was reading one of your pieces in archer magazine Ah, um, where you talked about kind of the intersection of um having a disability and also being queer. Mm-hmm. And I just, there was an interesting thing that you wrote, which I wanted to ask more about. Yeah, um, You wrote, what I will say is that while intersectionality is useful for understanding compounding axes of oppression, it can also speak to a shared toolkit for resistance. Um, what did you mean by that? And can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Well, I think, um, so, because I was, Born with my disability, I've never not known a sense of otherness. And, um, you know, I think if from a very young age you're kind of coming from this perspective of otherness, this perspective of 
I'm not quite the same as my parents or my brother or the rest of people around me than, you know, for in my instance when I uh, realised I was gay, I would say that process was probably, that process of realisation was probably easier because disability already gave me tools to understand and conceptualise being in this extreme minority and being this thing that is not quite like my parents and not quite like anyone else at school and Mm. stuff like that. So I think oppression and discrimination and bigotry, while it is specific to specific identities, a lot of the ways that it manifests and the ways that it's actioned um, is through the same way. For example, lack of representation in literature and media and stuff like that. And so, Mm. you know, if my understanding as a very young child not seeing other disabled people and me questioning that, that gives me a way to understand and articulate that in the sense of, you know, gay people as well. So I think it, you know, I think uh, marginalised identities have a lot to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. Certainly disability rights activism is extremely indebted to you know, the civil rights movement, yeah, um, the black power movements, uh, disability pride movements are indebted to queer pride movements. I think um, certainly, and also there's uh, the reverse is true too. Uh, disability, um, I think disability is a- activism is all about, uh, I think it's interesting that, you know, for example, um, queer activism is sort of um, teaching people that there's nothing, um, you know, that being gay isn't a disease where disability is more like what's wrong with having a disease? So Mm. I think in many ways the kind of not just, um, you know, I think queer activism can take a lot from, uh, you know, disability activism by not even entertaining the argument of being gay is not a disease, it's normal. It can just go past that and be like, even if it were a disease, uh, what's wrong with that if I'm fine with it? Uh, So I think, you know, different identities have a lot to learn from each other and um, a greater exchange of techniques of activism is, you know, quite useful in you know, the betterment of humankind mm. generally. Yeah, cool. Um, I just want to keep asking you questions, but we run out of time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's all right. You can't share some big news that you've got, but um, where can people find you, you know, all that stuff? Uh, yeah, well, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Baldwin Alistair. Uh, I couldn't get Alistair Baldwin, but I got the <laughs> Dewey Decimal surname first, nice. which I think is better from an index point of view. Um, I also have links to all the articles I've written on uh, alistairbaldwin.com. And uh, you can watch The Weekly uh, on ABC at 9pm on Wednesdays. Uh, and you won't see me in that, um, but I have... You know, a couple jokes in that each week. Yeah, Hopefully, cool. it depends from week to week. Sometimes <laughs> I don't get anything, in and sometimes <laughs> I get nearly up to two minutes of content. Um, but it's you know all collaborative and stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. 
tune into that. It's a really great program and such a good team to work with. And I think it's doing some exciting political satirical stuff. So mm. check that out. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. You may see me on TV later this year in mm. a role. Cool. Mystery. Mystery. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. It's just been so riveting listening to you that and having Mario doing all the questions. But thank you for coming in. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for both having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs>